According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 3. We'll fix our bearings here, and then we're going to go to the other dominant rapture passages of the New Testament, including 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. Also, John 14, which we didn't get to on Wednesday night. So, uh, much of this morning will be a, a repeat from Wednesday, but with some added material and, and hopefully uh, with a better presentation the second time through. So we'll uh, learn what we can learn related to rapture doctrine here this morning. So Philippians chapter 3, remember God is spirit, He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's take a moment for silent prayer and uh, make sure we are filled with the spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we do thank you for your truth, that you are uh, the source of all truth, the spirit of truth indwells us, and we're here today to learn from the truth of your word. So Father, open the eyes of our understanding, bless us and encourage us, Father, I thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so just fixing our bearings here and checking my phone ringer, this is probably, there we go, Yep, that would have been bad, that would have been bad, all right. Really, the, the obvious rapture text is the final verse of, of this chapter, but we've uh, actually observed a couple of previous inferences. If they're not, if they're not um, very overt or very obvious uh, references, I think that they are inferences at the very least, in particular in verse 11, when Paul is hoping to, if perhaps possibly, uh, arrive at the out-resurrection of the dead. And we discussed that when we were in verse 11, the fact that it's not the normal word for resurrection. It appears to be a significant compound that sets it apart from other terms for resurrection, including some right here in the, in the very context with the, uh, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And so right there, you've got the normal word for resurrection in verse 10, but we've got this unusual expression in verse 11 that Paul says, maybe, gee, I sure hope I can get there. And and that's odd if he's just talking about the resurrection of, uh, you know, that every believer has total confidence to be resurrected someday. You know, Paul's not thinking his salvation is in question. Even an unbeliever gets resurrected in the sense of standing before the great white throne and being cast into the lake of fire. Unbelievers have a resurrection of judgment. So the idea that, gee, I sure hope I can reach the resurrection someday... It's kind of a, a nonsensical statement unless there's more to it than we give it credit for. And that's maybe what's being used here with respect to the term, uh, uh, the out-resurrection, out of the dead. And that's to be resurrected without death, to have the rapture experience. And that's what he's really hoping for is that he will be alive, that Paul would be living in the rapture generation. And we'll talk more about that here this morning. And then uh, the other inference we might uh, also see is, is the one here in verse 14, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You might view that also, not explicitly, not overtly, uh, but maybe an inference to it when we recognize that the finish line for the race, for the church age, has a, has a starting gun called the day of Pentecost, and it has a finish line called the rapture. And so when you view it as a dispensation, then uh, the church, the body of Christ, began uh, when the Spirit descended at Pentecost, and it ends when we all cross that finish line together 
at, uh, at the rapture of the church. So the goal of the prize or the upward call of God in Christ Jesus could also uh, carry the sense of a rapture passage. And then quite obviously in verse 21, when your body gets transformed, that's, uh, that's rapture. Because right now you're in Bible class and your mind is transformed. You're, you have the renewing of your mind and the transformation that happens as per Romans 12.1. But, but uh, the transformation of your body, that, that waits for the rapture of the church. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has or the authority that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And uh, those are the details there. So we'll be dealing with that here shortly. All right, so really if you're following in the outline then, point five in the outline, the rapture of the church is typically taught from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, There are additional details that are sometimes drawn from John 14, and I'll be drawing those for you here this morning, and also hear the details that come from Philippians 3.21. And they give us, it's like the the fine-tuning. If you're painting with a broad brush to get the the big idea, and then you paint with the the smaller brush to get the more fine points and get the more detailed uh, expressions. And so that's what we have here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, that one's huge, and then here in Philippians chapter 3. All right. And so if you want to teach this yourself, you want to teach it to your kids or your neighbors or your enemies, uh, this, this gives you a good outline then to, uh, to go with. So start with 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's turn over there. 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the last part of the chapter, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And uh, I don't know if you can tell or not, but everything from Genesis to Revelation, I think rapture is right there as either my favorite item ever to teach. I mean, rapture doctrine is just, it's our blessed hope. It is, it is the thrill to consider that today could be the day, this moment could be the moment. And uh, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. You know, how sad is it when believers are ignorant of rapture doctrine? We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. And so our orientation to our loved ones that have physically died and are now at home with the Lord, it's not one of, we do have human grief, but it's a grief with the hope of the resurrection and hope of the rapture of the church. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so clearly what Paul's saying here, you see what he did? He takes the death and resurrection of Christ and says, do you believe that? Well, of course. I mean, that's foundational to our salvation. That's foundational to our theology, our Christian walk. Who among us in this room today does not believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well then, even so, you see what he did there? He put this on parallel with that. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so the rapture event is going to be a marvelous event whereby everyone that's preceded us in glory will be coming with the Lord when He comes to gather us to the clouds, to gather us in the air. And that, uh, that's an exciting thing to think about. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And that, that idea, by the way, does that seem weird to you? 
That idea is not weird at all. In fact, it's normative. It's normal from an Old Testament standpoint. Uh, when you talk about you know, 4,000 years of history from Adam to Jesus, the whole idea of resurrection day was the last day, was at the, at the end. The idea that when, when, when Job would take his stand upon the earth in the resurrection, that's at the end. When Daniel would take his stand, that's the end. Remember when Jesus was trying to comfort Mary and Martha, right? Lazarus died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And, and they're like, well, yeah, we know, Lord. He'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day, you know. And, and if we, when you go to that text in John 11, it almost seems kind of gloomy on, on her part, right? Like, you know, some comfort that is, big deal. Yeah, he'll be raised again someday, you know, won't we all? And so that idea of an end time resurrection whereby we're resurrected on the last day for judgment day and, and so forth, that's the normal Old Testament theology. That's what they have to look forward to. And even Jesus preached that. And he's, when he talked about all who are in the grave will hear his voice and some will come forth to a resurrection of life, others will come forth to a resurrection of judgment. That's how Jesus taught it in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And so uh, what these Thessalonian believers would be concerned about is they've been taught rapture doctrine. Uh, he had taught that while Paul was with them. And now when he's writing it to them, it's a follow-up to what he taught them in person. But the idea of preceding those who have fallen asleep could be viewed as a negative thing, could be viewed as a discouragement, could be viewed as, ooh, well, I hope I'm not the rapture generation because, you know, I mean, it's as fun and great as that would be, then I would be caught up to be with the Lord and resurrected and glorified and enjoying the kingdom and and my, my, my poor loved ones will be left out. They'll be behind. They, they, they don't get to take part in those blessings. They've got to wait till judgment day at the end of time. And so the, the sequence of events, given that rapture is introduced here on a mystery basis, the sequence of events have to be ironed out. And that's what Paul's doing here. He does it here. He does it in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and we're doing it here this morning to make sure we're, we're clear on this. So the rapture is not a, a chance for us to get there first in resurrection glory, while those that uh, couldn't live long enough to get to the rapture have to wait for you know the, the, the millennium, Right? We're not going to precede them, and that's the point. And so we will not precede those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Recognize this is not every dead person ever in the history of dead people. It's only the church age, those that are in Christ, those that are in Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so they actually, they're going to precede us in the sense that they, they get resurrected, they get their resurrection bodies just prior to what happens to us, where we all get snatched up together, see? So the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. He's not going to kill the rest of us. We stay alive. We have our experience without physical death. We who are alive and remain will be raptured caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And this is where, of course, we have the Greek is harpazo, uh, the Latin is rapto, and it's because of the Latin rapto that the, this idea gets called as the rapture, okay? Uh, there's other words, you know, I mean, we get criticized for this, like it's our fault. We get criticized for this. It's been called the rapture for centuries before we came along. But we get criticized for this when the skeptics want to say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. 
And, and then they don't want to listen when you walk them through the simple explanation. It's not even complicated to, to demonstrate, you know, okay, you don't like the term? Great. You know, Trinity's not in the Bible either. You know, and do you have a problem with that? Let's, let's find other terms that are in the Bible. And we use them all the time because they're useful. They communicate, they're valuable, they're theologically valid. They've been accepted in, uh, by Orthodox uh, uh, pastors and believers for years. So anyway, it's just it's frustrating sometimes when, uh, when you deal with, with these folks. But, um, you know, we've got a lot of other raptor words for snatching or grab. Even rape. Rape is a, is a, is a terrible thing, but it comes from the same root. It comes from the same snatching and grabbing and violent uh, uh, etymology. Yes, Mark? Yes. Rapto appears in the Latin of the Vulgate, right, in this text and elsewhere. Yeah, so um, if, they, if they want to mock you, just mock them right back for being uncultured and having no grasp of Latin. And you can, <laughs> in a grace way, of course. <laughs> All right, so there's a snatching. There's a snatching. And, and, and part of what I want to talk about today, too, is the reason why this has to be a different event from the Second Advent. That uh, when people want to deny that this is a thing, what they're really denying is that this is a thing that's separate from the second advent of Jesus Christ. That it's a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, because if, you, if they try to make a post-tribulational rapture out of it, if they try to say, well, it's all the same thing, Jesus only comes once, it's His coming, and when He comes, He lands on the earth. And so, yeah, we might meet him in the air, but then we drop right back down with him and we land. So we, we launch from Austin, meet the Lord in the air, and then we land on the Mount of Olives and we go forth and fight at Armageddon and all the rest. That's called the post-tribulational rapture view. And it's not tenable. It is absolutely not supported. In, in, uh, in fact, it's, we can disprove it easily in, uh, in the full context of what happens after the millennium. You know, in the sense that the millennium starts with all believers but if it starts with all resurrected believers, then there's no more babies, there's no more procreation, there's no more childbirth. And so uh, if, you, if, if the rapture event is the second advent event, then we have no more procreation in the millennium. And that's a problem because the millennium clearly has procreation and clearly has children sticking their hands in, in, in viper's nests and has unbelievers not getting saved and rebelling against Jesus Christ at the end of the, in the Gog-Magog rebellion. Okay. So there in two minutes you just got the, the essence of why post-tribulational rapture just theologically doesn't, doesn't carry water. It's a bucket full of holes and it's just, it drains faster than anything when, uh, when you recognize that there have to be unbelievers in the millennium that get born after the millennium starts. So these are the uh, details here. And then of course, uh, caught up, raptured, snatched, um, together with them in the clouds. And so it's one snatching of, of everybody, the whole bride. The whole bride gets, uh, gets taken here with respect to this. All right, Doug? So the whole bride gets taken here. And uh, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So we shall always be with the Lord. And that's a marvelous statement, okay? Because that's clear. It, where He is, we are. That's a very clear statement there on the rapture. And uh, then it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a comforting idea. Uh, chapter 5, likewise, has comfort in 511. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. So when you study eschatology, these are studies for comfort. 
And uh, again, another frustration of mine is when people tell me that eschatology is a waste of time, that uh, you shouldn't feed your flock eschatology. You should just nurture them in, in practical, practical things for how to live the Christian life here and now. I think eschatology is exactly that. I think when you're focused on the imminent return of Christ, that is the best motivation imaginable for living a godly life here and now, for keeping short accounts, staying in fellowship, and serving, uh, doing all that we do is unto the Lord. So these are the details we glean out of 1 Thessalonians. And if you were here on Wednesday, you saw most of these points. I fixed some of the errors and uh, maybe made some more. But uh, I think this is the improved slideshow over Wednesday night. Physically dead church-age saints, which is a lot. You realize we've got 20 centuries of physically dead church-age saints? You know, from, I mean, every, every church-age saint from Pentecost onward. So the apostles... The, the martyrs, all those that were thrown to the lions and the, all, the, all the persecutions in the early Roman era, the, the, the Reformation, all throughout church history. Martin Luther, we're talking about John Calvin, I mean, all this. And um, my mother, I mean, all uh, physically dead church-age saints, presently in heaven, will come with Jesus at His coming. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians four fifteen and 16. See, they're at home with the Lord now. They're in heaven now. But they're going to return when he returns. Now he's going to stop in the air. They're going to land all the way on the earth because they've got to fetch those bodies that are being resurrected. So their soul spirit's going to get reunited with their uh, resurrected and glorified bodies. Physically dead church age saints presently in heaven will come with Jesus at his coming, returning to their former bodies, being raised and glorified first. That precedes the snatching. And that makes sense. How could they be snatched otherwise if they were not returned from heaven and and resurrected and glorified? Then they could be snatched along with us to be snatched together to meet the Lord in the air. And so that's, to me, there's more questions than answers of this. We had some fun with this on Wednesday talking about, you know, that's why cemeteries are so fun. And I don't know if you ever hang out in cemeteries, but if uh, anytime I'm in a cemetery for a funeral or whatever else, I have that thought, wouldn't that be something if I'm preaching a funeral here and then the trumpet sounds? And how many of these graves are just going to be busted wide open with glorified saints coming forth? And, you know, it seems like a kind of a cool place to be when it happens. So, um, yeah, think about that. All right. Then, then, how long does it take for a then to follow something that precedes it, right? Then, we who are alive and remain. Then, subsequent to step one is step two. Physically living church age saints presently on earth will then be raptured, that is snatched, grabbed, together with the raised in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. We who are alive and remain will be harpazoed. The Greek verb is harpazoed. So if you don't like rapture, then make up an English word that starts with harp. Okay, we're going to be harpoed, harpazoed. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That follows their resurrection. They get their glory first. Then we get snatched together. That's the order. Thirdly, the consequence of this rapture is eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. I can't stress that enough. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. It's right there. It's plain as anything. 
And it's, it, it saves you from a lot of bad doctrine that would otherwise confuse issues in terms of the rapture or the judgment seat of Christ or the millennium or exclusion from feasting. Uh, there's a lot of confusion out there about, you know, believers that don't, uh, don't overcome so as to earn some rewards in the millennial kingdom. And so they don't get to feast with Jesus. They have to go to the outer darkness and kind of wait for the millennium to be over. And then they can, it's, it's just bad doctrine. All right. And it's sad because there's otherwise good men that have books in print now that have this flawed approach. And uh, let me tell you, if Jesus is not in that outer darkness missing his own wedding feast, we're not in the outer darkness missing his wedding feast. Because thus we shall always be with the Lord. You know what that, that means? It means thus we shall always be with the Lord. Eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. And uh, of course his resurrection body, like his mortal body, is a monopresent resurrection body. So where it goes, where he goes, in his, where he bodily goes, as the God-man in his resurrected glory, that's where we go as the bride of Christ. So the consequence of this rapture is eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. So when he comes on a white horse descending out of heaven to conquer an Armageddon, and there's the armies of heaven following him also on white horses, you know who that is? Well, thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's right. So do you know how to ride a horse? I hope so. Now, not mentioned... You realize if you were reading this text and you were looking for that eye-twinkling transformation, it's not in this text. That's in the next text we're going to look at. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches all these things, but in, in the, the written canon of 1 Thessalonians 4, there is no mention of the eye-twinkling transformation. But when combined with 1 Corinthians, it presents the clear picture. And there's no denying that these passages are harmonious. These passages are linked together and they describe the same event. So there's no mention of the eye-twinkling transformation, but I think it's, it's implied, it's, it's clearly it's there uh, in the sense of being snatched. We couldn't survive the snatching without it. We need the transformation in order to survive the, the snatching and, the, and the, uh, the, the, I mean, imagine what this body would do going through that steel roof. Imagine uh, it would not be a pleasant experience and, or being yanked up to the, to the stratosphere. Uh, this mortal body wouldn't wouldn't do well there, and we would all die very quickly. Just in the in the rapid accel- the g forces of the acceleration getting there would would kill us all. So, you know, obviously the transformation's a necessity, and it does happen, and it happens uh, prior to the snatching. And I think that's a pretty easy synthesis between First Thessalonians four and First Corinthians fifteen. If you've got a better way to reconcile those, I'd love to hear it. Let me uh, let me hear what your what your theory is for how. Without the transformation, we could be snatched to, the, to uh, be with the Lord. Also, no mention, no mention of the day or the time. No, I left this out last Wednesday, I wanted it in there. No mention of the day or the time. Is there anything in 1 Thessalonians 4 that tells you uh, that it's going to be in 2018 AD or it's going to be in the month of October? That's really popular. It's really popular because of the Feast of Trumpets in the fall for the, on the Jewish calendar. And so since the Jewish calendar has a Feast of Trumpets in the fall, and since the rapture of the church has a trumpet, what a, what a logical non sequitur, right? I mean, it just doesn't follow. But people get all wrapped up. They think that the rapture has to happen at some time in, uh, in October. And, and, you know, it did, the church did begin on Pentecost, so the church did begin on a Jewish feast. I'll, I'll grant you that. Does that mean the church has to end on a Jewish feast? 
I don't think it has to, but the fact that the church was birthed on a Jewish feast, I, I acknowledge that is a detail that, that should, not be, um, should not be dismissed or ignored. So um, if the rapture was on the Feast of Trumpets, so then it would have a, a sense of a symmetry, I suppose, that would end on a Jewish feast, even as it began on a Jewish feast. But they blew trumpets other times of the year too, not just on the, the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Atonement or so forth. All right. There's no mention of a day or a time. And, uh, and, and anyone that's writing a book or anyone that tells you they know the day or the time uh, is going to be very embarrassed when the day and time comes and goes and it didn't happen. And so they got to change and update and update. And, you know, I know authors that are into their third and fourth editions now because they were wrong in the first two or three editions. And uh, it's just, it's, it's sad. And I love these guys. One of them is a kid I grew up with that is my age and went to seminary the same time I was in seminary. And, and, uh, it just, I, I don't know, I love the guy and uh, it just I find it heartbreaking when you start dating dates and doing all this. So that's how you can teach rapture out of First Thessalonians. We go to First Corinthians and we're going to get the details that aren't found in Thessalonica and so we can put these things together. And it is an interesting thing to me that everything that we just read, everything that he wrote in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was in Corinth when he wrote all that. And he was in Corinth when he wrote all that. He's ministering to these believers here now that we're reading about in 1 Corinthians. And so that's a, an exciting thing. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and this is a long chapter too, but it, uh, it really is dealing with resurrection for the bulk of it. And um, all of this, and I won't go into that, but all of this on resurrection how it's, uh, I guess, starting in verse 42. No, I'm going to back up because there's the, the glory that's mentioned here. I think that's significant. Um, in verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. And so it's, uh, it's almost like a dumb question, and he, uh, but he's going to answer it for him. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So when you plant something, have you figured out why that's a picture of burial yet? And what, uh, when a crop comes up, why that's a picture of resurrection? Because you sow this dead thing and life comes forth. That which you sow, you don't sow the body, you don't bury an apple tree, you plant an apple seed. And it's an apple tree that comes forth. A bare grain, perhaps, of weed or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds, a body of its own. And so the body of a, of a wheat stalk or the body of a corn stalk or the body of an apple tree or whatever, that's how God designed it. And it's a different thing than what went into the ground. And that's the picture of resurrection. For you and for me, what goes into the ground is a different thing. It's a body of death. It's a body of corruption. It's a body of mortality. It's called a body of humility. In one of the texts we'll see today. But then it comes forth in glory. It's a different thing that comes out of the ground. So then we talk about uh, God gives it a body just as He wished. To each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is the one, the flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. Which uh, leads me to wonder what we're doing when we're putting animal parts inside our bodies, pig valves or whatever else. Um, I don't know. I can't uh, answer that medically and I can't answer that theologically, but this is a verse that makes me wonder uh, related to, uh, to that. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. They each have a glory. And I believe they each have a glory because even the earthly still fills the purpose of God, still fulfills what God designed it for. And so it is a glory, but it is a glory that's going to be surpassed by the greater glory that comes in the resurrection. All right. So is the resurrection of the dead. It is Verse 42, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a soulish body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a soulish body, there is also a spiritual body. And so when you think of the three parts of man, body, soul, and human spirit, we have all those parts. It's the soul spirit is the invisible part. And right now our bodies are attuned to the soul side of that soul spirit duality, right? That soul spirit inner man. In the resurrection, the resurrection body is attuned to the spirit side of that soul spirit inner man. That's a contrast. That's an interesting thing to work through. All right. And now going through all of this on resurrection, and it's comprehensive. There's no greater text on resurrection than this. Then we get to verse 50. Says, now that you know all this about resurrection, let me tell you a secret. I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit, I'm sorry, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And so you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute. Who doesn't die? Everybody dies. Well, there is a generation that will not die. And that's the rapture generation. That is the believers at the time that the trumpet sounds. And so they're not going to die. God's not going to kill every believer on the planet so he can resurrect them when he resurrects all the other believers that have been in heaven with him all this time, right? We're going to get a resurrection-like change without dying. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, there it is. You wanted to read that in Thessalonians, but it's here. We will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. Notice that? So it's in agreement with Thessalonians, the dead rise first, then we are changed. The dead will be raised imperishable, we will be changed. So we get a resurrection-like transformation so that we can match them, and all of us are matching Jesus in our resurrection bodies. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, the mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so we get to be, and I, I want to be in that rapture generation. I believe I am the rapture generation. I'm going to go to my grave believing I'm the rapture generation. And what a song. Oh, death, where is your sting? We will be the ones that will be the unique exceptions in all human history of not experiencing physical death. So, um, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, when you sing victory in Jesus, that's a rapture song. All right, so here's what 1 Corinthians teaches. Physically living church-age saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. Physically living church-age saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. Without death, without corruption, without any kind of decay. 
and whatever else happens. You know, it's, it's, if you ever study the science of, of decay, it's, it's useful. Forensic, uh, in law enforcement, they, they make a major study out of telling you how long somebody's been dead and how they died and other things that happened based on the unique circumstances of that. And, uh, and yet, you know, there's, uh, there's going to be everything from and when, when the trumpet sounds, let's say it's today, you got people that died yesterday. There's a certain number of people, believers, that died last night, hours before the trumpet sounded, right? In fact, they hadn't even been embalmed yet or buried or, or, or any, anything, right? They haven't been cremated. They're, they're, still, uh, they're still at the, at the place and, and awaiting uh, the families trying to decide what they're going to do next and trying to figure out the scheduling on whatever. And then the trumpet sounds the next morning. All right. Now, is that any less miraculous than somebody that's been dead for 2,000 years? Like the Apostle Paul. Where's his cadaver? Right? Where's his, is it even one piece anymore? Or, you know, we know he lost his head. Were they buried at the same place? If, if, if the body was buried here and the head was buried over there, does that thwart the rapture? Does that thwart the bodily resurrection? or eaten by lions, or thrown to the sea, or, I mean, it may be, you know, that a, a body, how do you find a body that's been gone for 2,000 years? And yet, God controls every molecule in the universe, so it's not really hard for Him, right, related to any of this. So, we get changed. In an eye-twinkling moment, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and the living saints will be change. That's the order. Notice, there's no mention of the snatching. Look at that again. You read through 1 Corinthians, there's no snatching in this chapter. There's no meeting the Lord in the air in this chapter. There's no, that's, that's in Thessalonians, that's not here. That's why we combine the verses to get a clear picture. As far as this seems, it seems like, well, wait a minute, they're resurrected, we're changed, and then, well, we just hang out here on earth? There's, there's no clue in 1 Corinthians 15 that were snatched up to meet the Lord in the air, and that were taken to heaven. All right? And even in 1 Thessalonians, there's a snatching to meet the Lord in the air, and that's where that scene closes. Thus we shall always be with the Lord, but it doesn't say in 1 Thess 4 that He goes back to heaven or that He lands on the Mount of Olives. It doesn't say either way. It just says we're meeting the Lord in the air and we're eternally co-located with Him. That's where we've got to go to John 14. So there's no mention of the snatching or the meeting in the air, but combined with Thessalonians, it presents a clear picture. And you need to do this. If you're going to teach rapture doctrine to anybody, walk them through each of these texts and show them how these things fit together. There's also no mention of a day or a time. There's no mention of a day or a time. And so we don't date dates. We don't name names of Antichrist. We don't do all this other stuff. Where we, uh, we believe it could be today. And if it turns out it's not today, well then tomorrow we'll believe the same thing. It could be today. And that's the day-by-day blessing that we have. All right, John 14. John 14. Now this one is, um, it is related to the rapture, I guess, to be technical. Yes, it is a rapture text. But it's a rapture text that Jesus gives on the night in which he's betrayed before the church even starts, this is part of the upper room discourse on the night of his betrayal, and he gives a lot of doctrine to his disciples that night that they don't have a clue about any of it. 
They can't process it. They don't understand it. So he promises them that when the Holy Spirit comes that he will bring to the remembrance these things so that then they will understand it. And, uh, so, and they don't understand that either. <laughs> okay? It's just a night of bewilderment. And um, it's kind of fun as you work your way through these chapters from 13 to, to 17 and um, really halfway through 13. And uh, Judas departs in verse 30 of John 13. He receives the morsel and he went out immediately and it was night. And then in verse 31 of John 13 you get this monster section of red letter text from, from 1331 to the end of chapter 17. And this is the upper room and walk to the garden discourse that, that Jesus is giving them on this night. And it's all preparation for the church age. He's not really spoiling mystery doctrine but he's giving information that's going to become applicable once mystery doctrine is unveiled and once they can bring this in to process it in a church age context. And so um, we have this. Now, as you look through this, and like I say, it's glowing red off your page, you can very easily spot the black words. And every time you got a black verse in these pages, you know what it is? The black letter printing on, on these verses? It means you've got a confused disciple that's asking a question. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And verse 37, why can't I follow you right now? And uh, chapter 14 and verse 5, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And, and Philip in 14.8, in you know, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Every time you get these black letter verses, <laughs> they're interrupting Jesus and, and they've got this question, Okay. In 14.22, it's Judas, not Iscariot. I want to be clear on that. He's the not Iscariot Judas. So here's what, uh, here's what John 14 teaches, all right, related to the rapture. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And so this is very consistent with Old Testament theology, very consistent with Jewish and Gentile expectations of what uh, resurrection glory is going to be like and what does it mean to, to, to go to heaven, what does it mean to, to be with God. Uh, many dwelling places. And so uh, there's provision that's made. And Job was assured of it, Daniel was assured of it, David was assured of it, all the Old Testament saints were assured of it, that when I die, I'm going to be gathered to my people, I'm going to have fellowship, and, uh, and there it is. But then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's something new. That's something different. Again, in verse 2, In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And that right there tells you something related to the rapture of the church. It tells you something related to the church itself. The church is something new and different. We don't belong in any of those other places. The Father's got many other places that are already existent that He fashioned for the Jews and the Gentiles and the angels and whatever else. But for the bride of Christ, a new creation, those uh, dwelling places have not yet been built. Jesus has to do that. I go to prepare a place for you. So He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise on the third day. He's going to go to heaven. And then he's going to get busy preparing a place for the bride. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, again, where is that? Is that Jerusalem? No, it's heaven. 
I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, notice now, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's rapture right there. That's a coming and a gathering together to Him. That's rapture right there. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Thus we shall always be with the Lord, right? Where I am, there you shall be also. I will receive you to myself. He's not coming to earth to live with us. He's receiving us to live with Him. And where has He been preparing all this time? Not Jerusalem, not the Mount of Olives. We meet the Lord in the air and then He takes us home. And you know the way where I'm going. How do we know the way? Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, it's back to the Father's house again. That's where verse 1 started. So here's what we have in John 14. In the context of His death, resurrection, ascension, and session, Jesus promised to prepare a dwelling place for His bride. Recognize that's the context here. That's the context of the upper room discourse. That's the context of one of you will betray me. That's the context of I will rise again on the third day. That's the context of His death, resurrection, ascension, and session. Jesus promised to prepare a dwelling place for His bride. In other words, what the Father's already had prepared for other dispensations is not adequate for the royal family of God, for the bride of Christ. Not just going to lump us in and say, "Oh well, you're a, you know, you're a, you're French, you're Ukrainian, you're American, you're whatever." We'll just we'll just lump you in with all these other, all these other believers from those nations from previous times. No, no, not so. In the body of Christ, we're neither Jew nor Gentile. In the body of Christ, we're a heavenly citizenship. In the in the body of Christ, we're a new creation. And we might have been something else before we got saved. We might have been white, black, Chinese, whatever, before we got saved. Jewish. We're not Jewish anymore or Gentile anymore. Once we're saved, we're royal family of God, a new creation, a heavenly citizenship. And so none of those other places are adequate for our habitation. See? Would you put a bird in a fishbowl? Would you put a, put a, a fish in a birdcage? I mean, seriously. Our habitation needs to be suited to our nature. And as the bride of Christ in glory... I believe the heavenly Jerusalem is, is a good fit. And uh, we see the description of that in, uh, in Revelation 22. All right. So he promised to prepare a dwelling place for his bride. Come and receive you to myself. This anticipates the meeting in the air. Come and receive you to myself. Anticipates the meeting in the air. And so, yeah, as uh, 1 Thessalonians gets written, it's uh, 4 colon 17a, as... Um, 1 Thessalonians gets written, then it's easy to harmonize that with John 14 and see the context whereby John 14 can be more fully understood. Where I am, there you may be also, delineates heaven as the prepared place and destination for us all when the meeting in the air is concluded. Landing on the Mount of Olives is not an option. That's the model you have to swallow when you go to the post-tribulational rapture view. Landing on the Mount of Olives is not, he's not been preparing our dwelling place on the Mount of Olives. He doesn't say, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. You know, if it were not so, I would have told you because it's getting crowded up there. I've got to fix a new place for you on the Mount of Olives. No. And as I said before, realize how global the rapture is. 
Every believer, every born-again believer on the planet gets raptured. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. All of us. Okay? If somebody tries to convince you that in a partial rapture theory that carnal believers don't get raptured, that's another foolhardy thing. We will all be changed. And so partial rapture is not an option. Landing on the Mount of Olives is not an option. For, uh, for glorified believers, you know, that would leave no mortality left on earth for the, for, the, uh, for the millennium. No mention of day or time. <laughs> John 14 says, I'm going and I'm coming back. I'm receiving you to myself. Where I am, there you will be also. But he doesn't say when. He doesn't say when. Okay? No mention of a day or time. See, these things, even Jesus in his humanity said, he's relying upon his Father. The angels don't know. Jesus says, you know, I'm leaving this to the Father. It has not been revealed to him how long the church age is going to be. No mention of a day or a time. And then we can get to Philippians. Here's, and back to where we started. Oh, wow. Didn't know those were all going to come up like that. Okay. Philippians 3. And like I say, verse 11 and verse 14 are inferences that I think uh, in the context of 11, 14, and 21 is uh, useful. Every generation of the church can anticipate possibly being the rapture generation from, from the Apostle Paul onward. I mean, seriously, couldn't the, the church have been finished after you know, a decade or two? Couldn't the church have been finished in, the, in Paul's lifetime? Couldn't uh, you know, a lot of folks gotten saved and gotten ushered into the body of Christ and then had a trumpet blow right then and there? Could have. You know, why couldn't it? So every generation has anticipated this or can anticipate being the rapture generation. When Darby was teaching this, he thought he was the rapture generation. When Schofield was teaching this, he thought he was the rapture generation. You know, uh, Larkin drew all those charts believing he was the rapture generation. That's, uh, that's our joy. That's, uh, to, to me, that's, uh, uh, that helps us to reinforce the fact that we're aliens and strangers. We're pilgrims. This world is not our home. We can be out of here today and hope that we are. And then the goal for the prize, finish line for the church age, there's no question that's the rapture of the church. There's no other finish line for the church, for the church age. And it's the first time ever that the whole bride is, is ever assembled in one place at one time. And when you're dealing with an organization that spans 20 centuries, 21 centuries now, right? We're in the 21st century? Okay, I lose track. We're, we're in the 21st century, and this is, we're part of a body that goes back all that time. And it's just, it, with, with human mortality being what it is, in this life, it's not conceivable for all those generations to be alive at one time. That's waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be on the new earth that we're going to see a thousand generations simultaneously procreated and simultaneously living. And when generation 1,000 arrives, generation one still here. How fun is that going to be? Well, on this earth, that's not possible. And in this life, that's not possible. And so all we have now is the folks alive today. And the folks alive today is the living generation, but I think it's more. There's different population estimates on that, and I don't know who to believe or why. I can't really critique their estimates on that. Some, because the earth global population is larger than it was back then, I guess, 
Um, and, and somebody wants to estimate, well, how many believers were there in each century and so forth. Is it possible? Is it possible that we have a, a, an equal number of, of regenerate people on the planet today that matches the 20 centuries before us? I, I don't think so, but some try to make that case. And even if they make the case, I don't know why it matters or what impact that has, but I say, okay. But we're all headed to the same finish line, and we're all headed to that rapture of the church, and so that's the goal for the prize finish line. And are you reaching for the prize? Are you reaching for the prize? Do you want to lose the race because the guy next to you stretched out his chest and and hit the tape just a, a millisecond before you did? Okay. And how many believers are just kind of coasting, relaxing, not thinking about that finish line when it could be today? That's the point on that. A bodily transformation contrast between humble state and glory state. And uh, here's where the word humble is applied, and it's contrasted with glory. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And humility has to precede glory. If you're not humble, then He will humble you. If you're, <laughs> he knows how to humble those who walk in pride. And uh, you're not going to have true glory without humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. And so I like what we see here. I like the description of this body versus the resurrection body, right? This is the humble body. The one we don't have yet is the, is the glory body. And uh, so if you're glorying in this body, you're kind of uh, ahead of your time and, and wrong. Uh, we shouldn't be glorying in this body. And yet... 1 Corinthians 15 did call the mortality a kind of a glory. There is an earthly glory along with a heavenly glory. But in the case of the glory that surpasses it, it is so overwhelmingly great that by the time we get that second glory, we look back at this first glory and say, eh, (laughs) no, it, it has no glory. Not compared to this. Not compared to this. All right. And does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. The glory of the second so surpasses the glory of the first, the first can be thought of as having no glory at all. And so um, this, um, I don't know, this is kind of a blend of First and Second Corinthians both. These were doctrines that we saw years ago when we were in each one of these chapters, if you might remember. Again, First Corinthians 15, it is called a body of glory in the mortality, as verse 40 there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. So it is a glory. I think it's a glory that while we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing grace comes from God and that we can even glorify God in this fallen body as a glory. And yet, even though it is called a glory, it is a humble body and is to be replaced with an even greater glory. And that's what we see uh, in the resurrection. And it is raised in glory uh, in in 42 through 44. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory as uh, as we take on now the glory of the heavenly. And it's a greater glory. And um, the doctrine that I think we can adapt that that demonstrates this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, unrelated to resurrection, completely unrelated to resurrection. However, What it does do for us, it does show us that when there's a greater glory surpassing a lesser glory, you look back at that lesser glory and say, wow, that had no glory at all, not compared to this, okay? And that's the whole point 
And this is where I think I just confused everybody on Wednesday, so now I'm reconfusing even more people on Sunday. But the, um, I think it's significant. Moses, Moses had glory. <laughs> Moses went into the tent of meeting and talked to Yahweh, and then he'd come out and, and talk to, I mean, you talk about a glory. And uh, he had to put a veil on his face because um, they couldn't look intently at the face of Moses uh, because of the glory of his face. Fading as it was, it would, it would diminish the longer he was away from that tent of meeting. And, uh, and so there's a glory there. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? You know, would, wouldn't that be fun to go sit in a tent and talk to the Lord? Well, we have is greater. Actually, what we have is greater. We're baptized into union with Jesus Christ. We have a complete canon of Scripture. We have access to the Father in prayer at any time, not just on certain days, not with, you know, we don't have to kill a butcher an animal first. We go to the Father anytime, anywhere, for any reason. We have the greater glory. Verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. We're the abounding dispensation in the church. Indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. That's the hindsight where you have this greater glory and you look back and you go, wow, I guess that was glory in its time, but this is, it was nothing compared to now. And uh, so, if, if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Ours is the abundant, abiding, remaining, not fading away glory of the church age. So, that's the concept there. <coughs> and then, really... Philippians 3 helps to bring that out with, with finer detail than 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians actually do in, in discussing uh, the transformation of the humble state, the revelation of the glory state. Also, an exertion of Jesus Christ's personal power, really His assigned authority. His assigned authority. His assigned authority. Again, it's Philippians 3.21 by the power or by the authority that he has, that he has received, that he has been given from the Father, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Notice, by the exertion of, and it could be either power or authority, that he has, that he has been given, that he's been assigned, that the Father has bestowed upon him, even to subject all things to himself. It's authority that he receives because he's victorious at the cross. It's authority that he receives because he humbled himself in the kenosis, that he came to live our life and identify with us. And this authority, this power that he receives, had he not come in the incarnation, he would not have received this glory, this authority, and this power. In other words, no rapture. Because he could not exercise this to transform us. The authority to subject all things to himself requires a victorious risen Savior to subject all things to himself. And so um, we can connect this back with John 5. I think when he talks about this related to authority, you know, the Father has judged until he gives all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. John 5 and um, I know I said 25 through 29, but you can even glance back and see um, 
21 and 22. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. See, prior to the church age, the Father was the agent of resurrection. But now the Son is given that authority, that power. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son. Why does He give judgment to the Son? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. This is the Father's plan. He loves His Son and He wants all creation to worship the Son that He loves. And then you get down to 25 through 29. And we see the reason why. Uh, Verse 26, just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. I believe this is when He begat the the human spirit of Jesus Christ, invested it into God the Son. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. The most hated title the Pharisees accepted, Son of David, they called it blasphemous to, uh, for him to claim to be son of God. But then when he said son of man, that was just too much for him. And they said, who is this son of man? Well, he's the one that's ready to judge the living and the dead. How about that? So do not marvel at this for an hour is coming, which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So the exertion of his personal power, the subjection of all things to himself, even to the subjection of all things to himself, In the subjection of all things to himself, you get into uh, tribulational studies, you get into millennial studies, you get into new heavens and new earth, fullness of time studies. In the subjection of all things to himself, all of those eschatological issues are in focus. Starting with what? Starting with the rapture of the church. Because it's the transformation of us living saints then that is the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. And so I think this detail in in Philippians 3.21, it just so um, paints uh, an intricate blessing with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. And now it brings into focus Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, the privilege of of, of being in Christ and having all things subjected. Not only are all things subjected to Christ, I got two minutes. Let's, Let's look at Ephesians 1. All things are subjected to Christ. We can't say that's true today. There's a whole bunch of unbelievers today that aren't subjected to Christ. There's a whole bunch of fallen cosmos that's still subject to Satan. There's going to be a whole world given over to Antichrist and the tribulation, but there is a destiny whereby all things are subjected to Christ. The only thing accepted is the Father Himself. And so not only that, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the power of our transformation at the rapture of the church. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This now bridges us from church age to fullness of time, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So everything is subject to himself, but then everything 
goes to his bride. Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't overlook the fact that in the fullness of times, who's the fullness? We are. The bride of Christ is the fullness. He's the one who fills. We're the fullness. And as a thousand generations populate this and the new earth, as all those glories are unveiled, we're the body of Christ. The head and the body have these things. And it's, it's a powerful thing. In some cases, we just, you know, we stop and bow and wonder and go, I got more to study. <laughs> There's more to look at here. And it starts with a rapture. Rapture of the church kicks this off. Philippians 3.21 says, it's the authority that he has to subject all things to himself. That's the power Jesus exercises when he transforms us in the twinkling of an eye. Okay? All right. Father, I thank you for the rapture. I thank you that today could be the day. And I, I can never get tired of studying this. We studied it on Wednesday. We're studying it again today. I wouldn't mind studying it next Wednesday and just keep going over these things to, to get solid in them, to be grounded. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to these truths, not only to know what they mean, but then the impact of how then shall we now live. Father, motivate us to, to keep short accounts, to stay in fellowship, to walk in a godly way, in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.